0: you are listening to tech recruit a podcast that educates talent acquisition and recruitment professionals on innovation to attract talent across all industries we're glad you're here hi tech recruit listeners be sure to follow us on twitter at tech Conf, like us on facebook or join the tech recruit conference group page where you can meet all of our speakers and attendees and learn about all the latest trends that are happening. If you want to stay up to date, or maybe you just want to know when the next event is, you can sign up for the weekly newsletter at techrecruit.io. That's www.techrecruit.io. See you there. Would like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Jobvite. Jobvite is leading the next wave of talent acquisition innovation with a candidate-centric recruiting model that helps companies engage candidates with meaningful experiences at the right time in the right way, from first look to first day. The expanded JobBite platform infuses automation and intelligence into today's expanded recruiting cycle to increase the speed, quality, and cost-effectiveness of talent acquisition. Focused exclusively on recruiting software since 2006 and headquartered in Silicon Valley, Jobvite is now the recent acquirer of Telemetry, Rollpoint, and Canvas, and they will continue to enable hiring teams to source, engage, hire, onboard, and retain top talent with one end-to-end platform to learn more. You can visit JobVite at www.jobvite.com or follow them on social at JobVite. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Tech Recruit Podcast. My name is Stacy Broadwell. I will be your host. Today we have Aaron Decker. He is a full stack software engineer, something new for our audience, and he owns a company called iteachrecruiters.com. You can check it out. How are you doing today, Aaron?
1: I'm doing great, I'm excited to be here.
0: Oh good, well welcome to the show. I have some questions for you and I think this is such an awesome uh, uh, site that you have and a service that you're offering because it's certainly needed and there's, there's definitely a lot of different areas. We've had something like this at our conference and I would love to have more of that. But tell, first tell me about your background in programming and coding. What, what is your area of expertise?
1: Sure, yeah. I've been doing web development for a while now. I worked at a uh, couple of retailers. I worked at Kroger, uh, Target for a while. Um, and most recently, I was contracting for PwC. But I've done all kinds of stuff, but mostly web development, building like business applications and that kind of thing. So. And I was doing a lot of Node and React, so JavaScript stack. And um, before that, I was doing Java. So just kind of all over the map in terms of building different things.
0: Were you... How long have you been coding for?
1: Uh, I'd say more than 10 years at this point, but professionally, maybe eight, I think.
0: Did you go to school to be uh, in computer science? Do you have a computer science degree or engineering? I
1: I have an associate's degree in computer programming, but I actually went to school. I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry, and I started getting into programming while I was doing undergrad research in chemistry. I had to do a lot of Python, um, so I just got really into it. And then when I graduated, I, I was like, well, I could either try to find a job and, the, and if you have a chemistry degree and it's a bachelor's degree, that doesn't really get you anywhere. You have, you either have to go to med school or you need to go get a PhD. And I was like, well, I don't really want to go spend another six years in school. So I just became a programmer, <laughs> but it's great. Okay, I mean, I
0: love it smart move, right? Um, Did you feel like the work you were doing, there's there's so much talk around employer branding and feeling like you're connected to a company and and some of those companies that you mentioned. I, I wonder if some of the projects that you worked on, you felt like you had this affinity for the project or that you were, you were given back or what do you did you do any projects that you're really excited about that you were like oh that project was amazing or was it just kind of like maintaining code
1: no i think uh so for example when i was working at target i worked on the back end of their mobile app and we did the in-store mapping part so you can actually in their app i don't know if you know this you can and probably haven't used like target's mobile app but um, they
0: keep asking me to download it
1: <laughs> yeah they i mean they they push it because people get really engaged once they start using it. And there we have a ton of features in there. You could go into the app and look up any item and it would show you like on a red dot where it was in the store. So I worked on that, which was pretty fun. And that got some media attention and yeah. we were thinking like, oh, we could even turn this into a game where you could like go find things and we could make it a scavenger hunt. So I don't know. Some of that stuff got pretty fun.
0: Um, there was certainly that time when I was pregnant or I had my first baby, where <laughs> it was like going to target and just meandering around the place for, I don't know, a couple hours filling up yeah. your cart was just a soothing therapeutic thing to do. So I could see that being a target, target, no pun intended audience for that sort of thing and making it kind of gamey. Definitely so that brings us to now where you have a um the iteachrecruiters.com tell me how you, why you started that what was the the catalyst
1: so i've been kicking around this idea for a long time i mean when you when you're a software engineer you get a lot of messages from recruiters and sometimes they're just very badly targeted like i don't think i've i'm not even sure the last time i had.net on my resume and I still get people asking about dotnet jobs all the time. Right. I mean, I think this is a common thing software engineers complain about, or they talk about how recruiters don't know the difference between Java and JavaScript, which is, that's kind of a joke at this point, but it's still, I mean, it still seems to happen. So, um, I mean, it, it's kind of an obvious problem when you're a software engineer, but I don't think that many engineers really care to do anything about it. Um, but, I, when I was working at this consulting company a few years ago, I ended up getting to be pretty good friends with, um, Bacola Stewart. And now he's, he's director of talent acquisition at a fintech company, but I keep, I kept like in touch with him and kicking around this idea. And finally, after this last contract, I was a little burnout on programming and I just decided to try to build this thing and build this course and start blogging and see if I got any traction.
0: Okay. I can help you with that traction. Um, so that's really cool. Uh, so let's jump back a bit because I've had these conversations before. And, and certainly, when I, I come from an analyst background, so my background is pulling data off of SQL and into Crystal Reports and then to Excel, you know, and manipulating that data. I'm a pivot table expert, but that's where nice. it stops, right? And um, when I started in tech um, recruitment, I went and took a course on computer science, like a computer science 101 or a computer 101 course at a community college here in Los Angeles. Hmm. And I always take the opportunity to take courses like on Python or like, you know, update or something like that. And, I, and I've done those things and they're generally free. So it's just about investing in yourself. Oh yeah, Right. And and so I always think of the landscape in recruiting of like two things. Like it's the software, the application, right? Versus the infrastructure, right? And if I initially in my career focused a lot on the software application portion of it, and um, not so much on the infrastructure. And then when I would get those infrastructure roles, it was very much like learning a whole new skill set, right? It sure. was just like, yeah. oh, okay, because it's hardware versus software. So do you focus more so on the software side and then go down from there from not the microsoft.net but on the java where's your how would you whittle down that
1: i i think the most helpful yeah for sure no that makes sense yeah i think so what i've tried to really do when i'm building these uh like blog posts and courses and all this stuff that i'm working on i'm trying to take kind of a holistic view of like what is building software about and what is it like to build an entire project from start to finish because understanding all of that i think it helps recruiters to understand all of the jobs in that whole process so if you're going through and building software you're thinking about you're probably starting out getting requirements working with designers maybe working with uh, product owners project managers and then you're actually coding it at some point you're going to deploy it and you're working with infrastructure and devops people i mean you're working with different people through the whole process and i think i don't know if it's Easy to get that whole understanding outside of the actual industry and actually doing that stuff because it's such a long process and there's so much to it. I mean, and there's the difference between a greenfield project, which means uh, that's working on a new project from scratch. That's that's you're breaking ground on something new versus doing maintenance, and you have a whole set of different issues with, and you have different engineers that might even want to do that kind of work versus the people that only want greenfield work. So I think just going through at a very high level and just teaching about, you know, this is what a software projects like, like these are the kind of people you're hiring. This is what even looks like a a team. Like you've got X number of engineers and you've got a product manager and blah, blah, blah. I think that's where I even have tried to start even at a higher level.
0: Um, So you'll, you'll start with a mock um, requirement or a mock project.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think just explaining that process, like, yeah, the first thing you're doing is you're probably talking with the business. The business has a problem. Like at the end of the day, building software is about solving a problem or automating a problem. Right. Mm, So even just starting from that high level to try to understand why people are hiring software engineers. I mean, you, you can even start it like, well, we're a business. Could we buy this off the shelf or do we actually need to hire engineers to build something custom? Like that's even a decision before, the whole hiring process starts right
0: yes definitely like that um is this something that yeah if there's something we can buy off the shelf versus do we need to build a team around it and then going from there okay here's the um the project that we're gonna build and initially these in that project build these are the types of teams you would see and then once you have deployment that team is gonna be very different. Right. And these are the type of people you layer on. So let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit about maybe um, one of your courses. What, what is one of your more popular ones?
1: So the, the the main one that I'm starting to build, it's pretty long. It goes into all of these sections in depth, but I even just go into like deep dives on certain technologies. Like I'll just talk about Docker. Like how Docker is so complicated to explain. I found out just trying to explain it or something like Kafka, which is also fairly complicated to explain, but yeah, I mean, I, I have everything divided up into sections where you're starting with, um, the parts of a software project. What is the business side involved and what is like the, the engineering side involved to that? And then going through and talking about what are the different kinds of developers you're going to see and, and, the team makeups like you can have a project where it's all back-end developers you can have a project where it's all front-end developers like there's it just runs the gamut right
0: yes well let's do a mock project and run us through like we want this to be a learning podcast right I mean do you mind doing something no yeah
1: Actually, I don't know if you have
0: a whiteboard behind you
1: (laughs) I I have a white wall but I don't know if I want to Sharpie it up. But um.
0: no, I mean, well, most people will probably be listening um, on, you know, their are on the podcast, but I take pieces of this and I could take a piece of what we're going to talk about and put it out there. We'll tag you and put it on social media and all that kind of stuff. And like, it will be like a 10 minute sort of court, like, whoa, who is this guy? Right. So I yeah. m- what so that's why I asked you like a popular one. So if if Docker and Kafka are like the new go-to technology that everybody's re- all these recruiters are recruiting for, but they don't even understand what that is. Yeah. Where do we start? Like how okay, I got this well, order. They they're requiring all these things. I don't know about it.
1: <laughs> so we could we could try to build a system. Let's just think out how we would build a system. How about like an applicant tracking system? perfect. Like, isn't that, that's a good one to start with for recruiters. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of off the shelf applicant tracking systems, right? Like you can probably, you can probably name a few, but let's say we want to build something custom. So we're going to skip that part. We're definitely going to build some totally custom software. What are, what are like the main key parts of applicant tracking? You probably need, do you have like a way for users to apply for a job through it? And then maybe you need to have a system where it keeps track of all the users and keeps track of uh, all the communication between the recruiters and the users. I mean, mm-hmm. that's probably a fair assumption, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So normally, say,
0: yep.
1: yeah, so you're, you're gonna talk to the business and you're gonna say, all right, we're building this custom applicant tracking system. Like what do you need it to do exactly? And you would tell me your requirements. So yeah. what, what do you want this applicant tracking system to do?
0: Uh, we want to be able to put it on the back end of our website so our candidates can apply through our website. And uh, so there should be an API. And we want it to parse the resume. So when they put the resume in, it should parse out all their data without us having to type it out. Track um, the communication. And in addition to track that communication, have an API with our email system, that being Outlook or Gmail or whatever that might be. What would be super beneficial is the ability to call by clicking on the phone number um, from that. I'll stop there. There's so much more I can go Oh yeah,
1: that's a lot of stuff.
0: <laughs> right.
1: So, from. Sick? Yeah, calls. that's a good, okay, we might actually have to build this by the end of this. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. what I would start with, I'd start with like a user system, right? Cause you're gonna need a way for users to log in and create an account in your website. And you'll also have one for your recruiters who are accessing the ATS from the back end. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, you have a user system and you probably have different roles of users. So we designed that part out and they probably have different views. So when a user logs in, that's a candidate, they're going to see a totally different screen than a user that logs in who's a recruiter, right? So we're gonna design all of that stuff out, right? Like you're gonna have a designer kind of mock out all, all of what that looks like. And we'll think about the database, you need a user table. So you're probably gonna have to store users somehow and let them log in. And then the next thing you'll need is a, um, probably a job table to store all the jobs, right? That are up for, um, that you're looking for people for. And they might be related to companies. So you'll have a company table that, so you you'd list your jobs under the company. Um, and then you'll probably have some way to track communication. So if we, I don't know if we wanna go that far in depth, but there, but you can get the idea. We're, we're designing out the tables. We're designing out all of the screens that users are gonna look at, right?
0: So we hired two people so far. Is that right? We hired a designer and a database developer?
1: Well, you probably have your, so the way this normally works is you're just gonna iterate. So this is kind of like the agile system where you're going to say, all right, this is the minimum we can start building. So we're gonna build this user screen and this login system and all that. And then we'll start building out the rest of it as we go. So you're gonna hire everybody up front. You're gonna get your developer. So you, maybe you'll get two front end developers, you'll get two backend developers. You'll get your designer and you'll have your product owner or project manager and they're going to be talking back and forth with the business and like getting all the requirements. So what you'll probably do is you'll start building the core functionality, which would be users logging in and submitting resumes or creating jobs. And um, after you do that, you're going to enter all this stuff into like a task management system like JIRA or Trello or something like that. And you're actually gonna have your engineers start building this. And what they're gonna do is they're gonna build like minimum pieces and these things called sprints, which are just two week sections of work. And when you do this, you're going to be able to show this to the business as you build it, right? Yeah. So that's su- that that probably all sounds familiar, right? Yeah.
0: Um yes. I, I think the thing we did not mention is what technology we're using to build all this. Yeah. That
1: so process. Right, sure. At some point you'll decide what technology you're using and that might be decided by the business because they've already built everything in Java and they just want another Java application to maintain it easily. Or when you hire your first engineer or two, you might decide on a technology based on what what they're skilled in.
0: Okay, so you can design it before you can decide on the software to build it in?
1: Yeah, you definitely can. You can actually start build like, mocking out the screens because it doesn't necessarily matter whether you're using React or Angular or something like that, right?
0: Okay. So um, now with the technologies to build out the front end, let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, so your front end developers, you're going to select some kind of probably framework to build out the front end. And right now, people are usually, if you're building something custom like this, you've got three choices at this point you've got React, you've got Angular, and you've got Vue. You can hire people for that at this, like there's a lot of developers out there that do these front-end frameworks, so you can probably easily find two Angular developers or three Angular developers, or two or three React developers to work on your Mm -hmm. front-end. That's what you'd do. You'd probably find people that are already good in this one skill that you decide to use, and they'll be able to come in and just work on it quickly.
0: Okay. All right, so we got the front-end framework, the React, the Angular, and the View.
1: Yep, so now, they'll pick one. They'll, they'll say, it. we'll do it in React, for example.
0: Okay.
1: And then on the back-end, we'll have to decide what we're doing for the back-end. So in the back-end, you're going to pick a programming language you're going to use. So for this example, we could use um, Express and uh, Node, so that could be your back-end. And then they're going to pick a database at that same point. So you might pick Mongo if you're using Express with it. And then you have an all JavaScript stack.
0: On a JavaScript web?
1: It's, it's going to be, sorry, that's going to be an all JavaScript stack, right? So that's the, that's the mean stack or the MERN stack. So mm-hmm. mean stands for Mongo, Express, uh, Angular, and Node. That's a common tech stack. And a tech stack is just a collection of technologies you're going to use together.
0: Okay, so we're on a JavaScript stack, not a mean stack.
1: Well, this is going to be MERN stack, I guess, if we're going to use React. So it'll be yeah. React instead of Angular. Yeah.
0: Okay. MERN. Got it. Okay.
1: MERN stack. Yeah. So now it's all JavaScript. You can hire a Node developer on the back end, and maybe you'll hire a couple of Node developers, and they'll probably at this point they'll pick what like what protocol they're going to communicate and what backend framework maybe they'll use express maybe they'll use uh nest there's a bunch of different um back-end frameworks for javascript and uh they'll probably pick graphql or they'll pick rest so that's the way that you communicate back and forth between the server
0: mm-hmm. okay okay so these this is our stack this is our
1: we'll talk- stack yes
0: mm-hmm. okay so we have React. I think we went with the for the framework, and the back end is ex, Was it Express? We'll, we'll call
1: it Express. Yeah.
0: And then for the database, we're M- uh, Mongo, and this is our jo- what's considered our JavaScript stack.
1: Yeah, and Mongo will be the database. It just happens to store things in a way that's it's using something called JSON, which is a language that is how you're, it's kind of a protocol language of how to communicate back and forth between stuff. It's a, tra- it's a data transfer language. So it's similar to XML, except it's just JavaScript, which is, job, it, JSON stands for JavaScript object notation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's kind of like a, it's like a um, subset of JavaScript almost, the, the way you communicate.
0: Okay. Now, where does the confusion of Java versus JavaScript come in?
1: Oh sure, yeah. So the, the reason that, and this is kind of an interesting story, if you look at the Wikipedia page, there's like, it's pretty long, but basically what happened mm-hmm. was Java was developed by Sun Microsystems mm-hmm. and JavaScript was just a scripting language that, um, and oh, what was it called, Netscape at that point. It, it, so Netscape was developing this scripting language to run inside the browser and they basically just named it javascript so it could be the counterpart of java on the browser and it was a whole it was a marketing thing essentially it, they have nothing to do with each other really they have some similarities in syntax but i mean that's just because they're both a c style language
0: okay so complementary you can use this javascript with your java
1: yeah it was like you could use the javascript in the browser and maybe you could use the java on the back end but In practice, they're not really related in any way.
0: Okay. So then, okay. So because when we're talking about the JavaScript, I can see how this could be confusing. Because if you call it a JavaScript stack, right? And it is, but JavaScript is for your browser. Right. But the stack, the JavaScript stack encompasses your backend, your database, and your framework.
1: Yeah, this is an important thing to explain. So about 10 years ago, uh, <laughs> Node came out, which is JavaScript on the server. Okay. It came out in 2009, I believe. So Node is, it's the same JavaScript runtime, it just actually runs on a server. So now JavaScript has kind of become this general purpose programming language that people are using for everything. And it's, it's not, just relegated to only the browser anymore
0: okay 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 now if you had a position that was front end only what are typical um skill sets that you might see associated with that
1: for sure so the thing to understand about front end is that there are three key technologies that you need to understand to work in a browser those are html CSS and JavaScript. Those are the three fundamental technologies that make up a web page. Stuff like React and Angular that just builds on top of those three fundamental technologies, but at the end of the day if you're a front-end developer, you need to understand these basic things very well.
0: Okay. So generally when you get a position, at least for a recruiter, <laughs> I'm like telling you like you're a when when recruiters get positions and it says JavaScript and um you know, naturally, I think, I I assume that it's a front-end position. Yeah. Uh, I can see where confusion might go where it's a JavaScript stack, and then you got the Node and the React and, and all those, right. those things. While those are also, as you say, those are front-end frameworks.
1: So React, yeah, React is a front-end framework, right? So that builds on top of JavaScript. Mm-hmm, and, yeah, I yeah. think this is confusion, too, because, like, I'm not sure if every recruiter understands this until they really encounter it is that to be good at react you have to know javascript like react is just yeah. it's just a framework built on top of javascript
0: right i okay and 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 also i think there are times when we we as recruiters will get positions where it is java but then they'll say but if they know um like um, i think c sharp then yeah. it, is it Right, then it, yeah. it, is, it is that fundament, fundamental language.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think, I think I can probably explain like what they're doing there. So okay. I think when you talk to an engineer, mm-hmm. you probably, they probably wanna know what stack the company is using. So, and I see this in job descriptions all the time, and I think it's a bad idea to do, where they say, oh, it's we have a Java application, but it's okay if you know C-sharp. Like, I mean yeah. that's fine. They're just explaining that they want somebody that's a good back-end developer because those are both back-end languages, right? And they they both have a very similar syntax and they're open to working with somebody without Java experience. But I, I think that developers want to know what stack that the company is using, right? Like they want a clear description of what tech stack the company is actually currently working in, right?
0: hmm um, but when when they get the position, they find out there's all this legacy code in .NET that they hadn't anticipated, and then they're asked to work. On.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, just kidding. Yeah.
0: Hopefully, that doesn't happen.
1: That could be another thing why people are doing this, where they're saying, "Oh, it's it's a job application, but it's good if you also know .NET. And it's like, then as a developer, you might get a little suspicious about what's going on there. Right.
0: Well, I I think that experienced recruiters see that too, because. Java, the Java stack, all those, those positions very much encompass um, like the node and the React. It, it's a different uh, stack than you see with the .NET, but then you see, um, what were some of the ones I, uh, like Linux or something like that, or, or you know, that just doesn't, yeah. right? That's, that's a server, right?
1: <laughs> well, so the, the big thing between .NET and Java is that Java is usually an open source stack and it's running on Linux. Yeah. So a Java developer is probably somebody who knows Linux really well. Right. They're yes. a back end. Java is a back-end language and it requires you to know infrastructure a little bit and all of that. And they they're probably the person you're hiring who's a Java developer knows Linux probably. A C sharp developer, the language is similar in a lot of ways, but you're running on a Windows. Environment yeah. that's a very different server environment to run on. The infrastructure is very different. Like y- you're looking for a totally different skill set because half the thing that you're doing with backend development is also a little bit of ops and infrastructure work. Like at the end of the day, the d- the backend developer is normally somewhat responsible for how you're actually deploying and running the application. And that's the that's the next section we're going to get to in the applicant tracking system that we're building. <laughs>
0: Okay, so, so far to get everybody up to speed, we've talked about the front-end framework. Does that, would that be a correct assessment? The JavaScript we, stack.
1: We talked about the entire stack that we're using.
0: Okay, so go over it again, just, just the, stack, the stack.
1: So here's our, here's our tech stack. On the front-end, we're gonna have React, and those will be what our, that's what front-end developers are doing. And then on the back end, we'll have Node and Express, and that's what our back end developer is going to be writing code in. And then they're going to use MongoDB as the database. So right, that'll perfect. also be something the back end developers are dealing with.
0: Okay, cool. And so now that we have the stack, and in each of those positions, um, well, we we talked a little bit before about having the front end developer and the back end developer. Right, and a designer. So, um, when we get into, did I miss one, the DevOps? Or is that on the infrastructure?
1: We're we're getting there. Cause we're gonna, let's say we're gonna work on this for a couple of months and we're gonna get ready to start deploying it. Let's say it's a six month project or something, right? So yeah, we're starting to get to the point where we're gonna have to start worrying about ops.
0: Okay, so what are the roles we have so far on this stack?
1: So we probably have a designer. And we have some kind of business person who's the uh, business contact. They, they're usually called the product owner. Nice. And then you'll have maybe a project manager on the team itself to uh, to kind of like manage um, uh, workflow. And they might also be an engineering manager. It just depends on how the organization is structured. It just, there's a lot of different job titles and it all, it just depends on how the org's structured. But Basically, you might have like some kind of manager managing the engineering team. And okay. then you'll probably have a couple front-end developers and a couple back-end developers. So, let's say you've got two front-end developers and two back-end developers.
0: Okay. Nice. Okay. And so, they're work- working away and they're, they're designing.
1: And they're building everything. Yeah.
0: They're building. So, okay. They're building. Yeah.
1: So, let's say they've been coding for two months or something and they're ready to go out of their test environment. They probably had a test environment, they stood up, but now they're ready to try to start pushing this towards production and they wanna scale it up and make it reliable and redundant. Um, At this point, it depends on how the organization is structured again, but you might bring in a DevOps person at this point. And this ops person will probably be in charge of saying, all right, our organization uses AWS, or our organization uses Google Cloud Platform, whatever, they're gonna use some kind of thing in their organization, right? So you're gonna okay, make hold this on, decision. hold on,
0: Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Sorry, yeah. Remember we talked about acronyms, so we wanna explain what Amazon Web Services and, and Google Got Cloud, yeah. what those function as for this portion.
1: Yeah, so the, the step that we're getting to is we're getting to a point where we need to deploy the application out to an environment where users can get to it and it can be stable and handle traffic. So that this is the last part of building your application, right? Like you can write the code, but it needs to live somewhere and respond to things. So what's happened is that in the last, I guess maybe it's 10 years or so, it, it started happening um, probably when I really started getting into programming was all of these public cloud providers. So they're basically renting computers out to people and they have these huge data centers. A data center is just a big building with a bunch of computers in it waiting for people to put stuff on them.
0: It's not in the cloud?
1: That, yeah, <laughs> right. So, so when people say cloud, they're just talking about data centers somewhere, you know. So when, when you go into AWS, which is Amazon Web Services, which is a cloud provider, you can choose where you want your servers to be. So I can say, I want my servers to be in Oregon or I want them to be in uh, Virginia, wherever, right? It's just, that's the cloud, wherever that data center happens to be. Um, But yeah, so this this last part is, you need to host your application somewhere. And most people now use these public cloud providers because what you had to do back in the 90s is you actually had to rent space in your own data center, buy your own hardware, and install your stuff on that hardware. And that means, if you think about that, that means now you're paying all this money to rent space at a physical location. And you have some kind of a hardware person you have to hire to actually manage the physical hardware. So is now-
0: that the VMware?
1: the The physical hardware would be maybe like an actual physical server from Dell or some somebody like that. You know,
0: what did VMware do?
1: Yeah, VMware. What VMware does, they do virtualization. And let me. I'll try to explain this a little bit slowly to get into this. But <laughs> basically, uh, so when you're when you're running servers on the cloud, and that this just means in a data center, right? Yeah, you're slicing these up into these things called virtual machines. So
0: yes.
1: what might happen is you could have one physical server and these physical servers, they're, they're these things called blade servers usually, which it'll have, inside of it, it'll have a huge amount of RAM and a huge amount of processing cores and an enormous amount of disk space. And they slice these up into virtual computers. Mm-hmm. So one physical server might have 20 virtual computers running on top of it. And on these virtual computers, that's where you're going to host your application. And VMware is kind of the software that allows you to do this virtualization and slicing up stuff.
0: Okay. So you could virtualize in cloud.
1: Yeah, that's exactly okay. what VMware is helping you do. Yeah.
0: Perfect explanation. Thank you. For that's sure. For sure. Okay. And then
1: the thing is, most people now they don't have to deal with any of that because they're just buying um or they're renting servers from amazon or they're renting servers from microsoft azure or google cloud or digital ocean there's a ton of these providers Mm -hmm. because servers where they used to be a thing you had to do yourself like back in the 90s um i think now they're basically like a utility you just purchase it from the provider and rent them you don't really need to think about it that much. So even now, unless you're a big organization where you're running your own hardware, you probably don't even need to use VMware.
0: Yeah, that's why I was uh, wondering if um, AWS had taken over that VMware necessity.
1: In a way, I mean, it just depends on the organization. Some people still host their own physical data centers just because they're at a scale where it makes sense to do. But if you think about all the people you have to hire to do that like that's an enormous amount of staff if you don't need to do that and you're a small company just building software then you're just going to rent your server space from AWS.
0: Okay. Okay. So we have our we're deploying our environment. We've decided we could do AWS or Google Cloud and we need a DevOps person.
1: Yeah, so let's say we we choose AWS, right? So let's say we work for a company and that's their that's their chosen cloud is aws that means they probably have somebody on staff who manages that and maybe they maybe it's hired out maybe it's not but you probably have some kind of devops person involved that's going to guide like how that aws deployment works so they're going to set up all of the servers that your application is going to live on the pipeline to deploy and There's a lot more stuff to this. So there's monitoring, you need to know when your servers have problems. There's alerting, you need to get notified when the monitoring shows that there's a problem. And then there's a support ticket, you need a support system, right? So you might have to hire um, support staff to answer tickets or incident response, that kind of stuff. So like now you've got this whole other set of employees, you need to get involved to do all this kind of stuff.
0: So this feels very much, and, and as we're talking, I, I literally am pulling files out of my head of previous roles mm-hmm. that I've helped recruit for, and I've had DevOps positions, and I've had DevOps positions that were more so on not the infrastructure side, and it was more so on a, the software side, and they were looking for somebody who also knew how to code. Um, and yeah. so I think, you know, those are questions like when you get a DevOps position, it could be somewhat confusing. And I mean, there's a couple of positions, even like the product and the project manager positions, unless you have a, unless you clearly know the, the questions to ask as to what side this falls on, without sounding like you don't know, because I think that's the big challenge with recruitment. You don't want to sound like, you know, you don't know, but you have to ask those questions to be educated sure. on it.
1: Yeah, well, I've, maybe I can explain something that'll help that make a little bit more sense about the coding part. So okay. the, the DevOps, the idea of DevOps is it's a combination of development and operations. So the point of DevOps kind of is to automate operations stuff. So doing that, you might have to code. For example, let's say you have your application and you're working on it and you need to deploy it. Well, you don't want that to be a manual process. And a lot of times you start out making it a manual process you say all right we're gonna copy this file up here and do this and it's going to deploy the application well as soon as possible you want to automate that so that you just click a button and it starts from here's your code here's the deployment now the application's live so the devops person should know how to code because they're going to be working on automating as much as they can
0: mm. That's interesting. I never thought of a DevOps person's role as chief automation officer.
1: <laughs> that's well, that's and so there's another title. title. <laughs>
0: there
1: there's another title you've probably heard of as Site Reliability Engineer.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: That's a very similar thing. It it's kind of I think the term was invented by Google. They have a book that you can read for free out on the internet. But they they basically say this is a DevOps role, but the the main goal of it is to automate your own job out of existence.
0: This is a DevOps job, but the main role is to automate your job out?
1: Right, because the site reliability engineer, they're responding to support incidents. They're Like when the application goes down or there's some issue or something, they're trying to figure out all the things that are going wrong and Automate that so it can never happen again or it can automatically be dealt with so okay. maybe they're spending some time answering support tickets but the the other time they're trying to automate the issues away before those support tickets ever even occur
0: okay okay yeah i i can see that like um reducing redundancy is making things efficient yep oh that 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 sounds like you know that uh, the automation. Like a, a, you know, summit or like like the heaven of automation. I don't know. It's like yeah. that's when you're like everything's running pristine and there's no redundancies. Oh, right. Okay.
1: Right. It's like a, a finely tuned machine. It's just working by itself, and you don't have to do anything at all to it.
0: Okay. So, deploying our environment, DevOps. What's next?
1: Well, at this point, you're supporting it. Right, so you've got that environment deployed. Maybe it's even automated, so you just press a button or maybe it even deploys automatically when developers push code. But at that point, you've gotta monitor it. So you've gotta say like, all right, if, if we have some kind of slowness happening or if we see some errors occurring in the logs, we want to send an alert. So people use, um, there's a uh, product called PagerDuty, which you can hook it up to your logging system and it'll start calling your developers if there's a problem based on whatever kind of metrics you set up. And then you might have like people, the backend developers might be involved in this, the dev- the DevOps develop, uh, people might be involved in this of just setting up all these monitoring and alerting systems. And depending on the type of application you're building, you might actually build a pipeline for support staff of responding to incidents. So you might have like a, a level one a tech support call center. You might have a level two, a level three, and then be able to escalate incidents up through that uh, support center. Mm, hmm.
0: Hmm. Okay. So that's our help desk and our desktop. Yep.
1: Tier one, yep. two,
0: and three. Yep. The high turnover positions.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because that stuff is stressful for sure.
0: Is it? Yeah. Have you? Did you start in help desk or desktop? Have you ever done any?
1: um it it depends on the organization but a lot of times developers are on call so being a back end i mean i call myself a full stack developer but a lot of times i lean towards the back end and end up working on back end teams so i've definitely been on call where you have to make your phone available to be called at any time of the day and um if there's an issue you need to get your laptop out and fix it and figure out what's going wrong so that's yeah. that's a real part of life for backend developers. And um, I think that's a thing that maybe a lot of recruiters don't know about that they should probably ask when they're hiring or looking for candidates is, um, you know how much production support is it? That's what they call it is production support. And yeah. your backend developers, they might be scared away if they hear there's a lot of production support or there might be turnover if there's a ton of production support.
0: I think that's a good distinction too because and that's so true like uh the amount of production support that is needed is that a different role like production would, would you call it help desk desktop or would you call it production support
1: they're different depending on what you're doing i mean yeah help no desk one,
0: no one is anybody ever really hired for just production support or would they call it help desk kind
1: of that's kind of what a site reliability engineer might be doing is just supporting infrastructure incidents but so there's yeah and this all gets really complicated really fast depending on how large yeah (laughs) depending
0: who knows what our audience is thinking
1: (laughs) sure yeah but depending on how large your your organization is so let's say let's say it's like an organization with a huge amount of software running, right? Like it's maybe you've got a thousand engineers there and they've got five, um, five major products or something like that, right? Um, you might have this front level or front facing customer support that's actually taking support incidents from customers directly. And then if they find an issue, they're escalating it to different engineering teams So you you might have an engineering team that is only dealing with infrastructure-related issues. And then you might have the actual application developers that are working on the software. They might be, for a specific product, they might get alerted if there's an issue with a specific product. So Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Like, let's say you're a company that makes a bunch of different recruiting software. And it's all like a software as a service platform or something. Mm -hmm. And you have issues coming in saying everything is slow, every single product is slow. Well, that would be a team. So your customer support people would would bring that back to the infrastructure teams because obviously that's affecting your entire infrastructure, right?
0: Yes.
1: Well, let's say you've got a bunch of people filing tickets about your applicant tracking system in specific. Now they'd probably escalate that specifically back to the development team that worked on your ATS system. Okay. But they, I mean, everybody's on call, right? Like those those back-end developers for that ATS system, if there's a bug in their application and they're the only ones that can fix it, they're gonna get a call in the middle of the night.
0: Yeah, I've certainly had those questions asked to me about the production support. And Mm -hmm. um, in certain certain companies where there is a high level of 24 seven, that they're online and what the uptime is. I mean, I've worked for FinTech companies where they have, um, you know, bank banking transactions. Um, yeah, which is nice. You
1: just shut it down on the weekend or something,
0: <laughs> right? Right, yeah, you can't like shut it down. And if something goes down, and so they always had the uptime on this whiteboard when you walk into the engineering department. Yeah, yeah like, you know, it was never 100, <laughs> I right. noticed.
1: An online retailer if you're down for an hour, you lost however many millions of dollars of sales because some number of people are not gonna come back and retry again later.
0: Mm. So where do, out of curiosity, when some failure like that happens, who does it fall onto? Who takes the uh, burden or the blame or do you think, in your opinion?
1: A lot of times what happens if there's like a major incident where things are just completely down and it's blocking customers from purchasing something, um, They'll there will be like a big meeting, like a big bridge telephone line and everybody will try to figure out, like a bunch of managers will be on it trying to figure out whose team needs to fix whatever issue is going on. These That might be how it happens in a big organization.
0: Okay.
1: So there will okay. be some kind I'm of like- DevOps. yeah i mean it might start there because they might be able to try to diagnose the issue
0: yeah because that's that's like right the communication between like the the web development and the infrastructure and like automating those processes and you know that's that's once you get that like you were saying you have the deployment and then he like comes in and automates all of it and gets it going and then we got the uptime and so juicy
1: yeah, there's a lot of stuff. And it, just, it also just really depends on how your organization is structured. Like, I've worked in a couple of different Fortune 500s at this point, and they're all different the way people are doing stuff. OK.
0: I like it. What, what comes next? QA?
1: Well, it, I mean, then you've got the long tail life cycle of the product. Like, when you build a software application, it probably lasts for 10 or 20 years before it gets rewritten or, or sunsetted. So you've got this iteration that's going on. If you're, if you're doing this the right way, you're probably tracking your user's behavior in the application and figuring out like what they have problems with, or you're doing surveys at the very least to get feedback from users. And then you're just gonna iterate on the, on the product to keep building it.
0: The documentation of these iterations, does that happen in JIRA?
1: It just depends. I mean, it just depends on how a team is working on it. There might be some design document. There might be some overall um, metrics that people are using. So they might might be using user metrics depending on the type of application. Like they could be using like daily active users or something like that. But people talk about having this North Star metric where they are just focused on this one number and they just want to try to improve that number all the time. So that's normally how people are trying to iterate on products.
0: Is Jira more a daily, like agile Scrum um, system to kind of mark off what you've done?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That so they're using that as a board to track tasks and the, the status of look at what a task is or where it's at being worked on.
0: And and because I've only I've not actually used it myself, I've only like filled those those roles of people who have that skill set which I don't know how hard it would be to learn how to use a tracking system. <laughs> but,
1: it's not, no, it's not very hard. Have you right? used Trello before? Have I? Yeah, Trello. It's um, it, it's kind of just like a really simple Kanban board, which means you have three columns and you can add more columns, but you have your uh, to-do column and then you have your doing column and then you have your done column and you're just moving tasks through these columns as your team is working on it and they get a lot more complicated than that like there might people might add a qa column or they might add a a a need the the work um something like a stuck column like things are blocked by another team but that's generally how everybody's doing that
0: have you used that before
1: oh yeah yeah
0: okay do you like those Um, do you like when you complete a task having to check off that you completed that task? Or does it's like, ah, I feel like I might be one of those people who forgot to check off and I went on to, and I'm like three steps down and they're like, Stacy, you forgot to do that again.
1: (laughs) So, well, yeah, sure. Normally what happens though, is when you're moving something to the done column, it's going through like a QA process, right? So you're, when you're moving a, a task over, you're saying, all right, I'm done working on this, it's ready to be tested.
0: Okay, Okay. so we're done with our deployment and support's helping out. And are are we in the QA phase, quality assurance phase and kind of maintaining the the long tail?
1: Yeah, like the the idea of agile development where you're iterating, that means you're doing the development, the QA, all that for the entire process of building the application like you're you're That's actively another. you're actively doing qa the entire time
0: so when i think of qa i think of just testing for bugs testing for bugs testing for bugs mm-hmm. and and i often wonder if for qa professionals they're like ah a qa role like it's not an attractive thing like it's like the the um like the worst other than help desk or something like position is is QA. Like um, You'd rather be a programmer or something. Is that the case? What do you think?
1: I think that, yeah, I mean, generally the more skilled programmers probably want to be considered engineers and not, there's like the idea of QA developers or engineers in test. A lot of times the more skilled, like it's, a lot of times people want to be considered more engineers and not engineers in test. But I think a a really good QA person who can write good tests and automate that kind of stuff of finding bugs and really like harden an application. They're super valuable. Like that's a really good thing to have on your team. I mean, if you're building a product and your engineers are pushing out buggy code and your customers are interacting with that, that's, I mean, you're going to lose customers, right? So having a really good QA person that, can really track down bugs and make sure things are working smoothly and just, I mean, you have to be pretty creative to do good QA because you're gonna try to do all the things a user might do to break something by accident, but you're trying to do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's, it's harder than people would think if you wanna do it well.
0: I feel like those positions are like there's, there's high turnover in them. I've not like, like helped us in desktop positions can be. And then I also feel like it's harder to find good QA professionals who Mm -hmm. can code. And on on top of that, um, and, and, you know, in in one of these particular cases where I was looking for a QA professional, um, we Halfway through, when we weren't finding really good QA professionals that really fit into this uh, that could code, we switched the position to a software development engineer and test. Yeah. Lo and behold, exactly. the doors opened.
1: Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good point because. A really good QA person is really just going to be programming a lot. They're going to be automating that stuff. They're going to be automating the QA process. So you want a good, strong engineer and you want the organization to consider them an engineer. So I think it's, yeah, it's all about, it's all about the perception of what they're doing. But either way, it's, it's extremely helpful to have a really good QA person on a team.
0: So I've had um, software engineers ask me that question. Am I just going to be maintaining code where mm-hmm. I'm gonna be writing something new? And um, so if they, is it safe to say, or would you say that somebody, a software engineer who's just maintaining code is really just a QA professional?
1: No, I mean, that's not. So when you're maintaining code, you're probably adding new features. Or you're fixing bugs and that kind of thing. So there's okay. definitely a little bit of tracking down issues. Some of that can be kind of fun though, because you're you're diagnosing something and you're doing a lot of hunting to figure out what's what's really going on. If you did a greenfield application, you probably wrote the bug yourself, and it's you're not really it's not it's not super difficult to figure out what's wrong always. But um, if you're coming onto a project that you need to kind of rescue that's in a bad state. Sometimes that can be fun.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Versus what is a QA professional going to be doing then?
1: The QA professional is they're testing the work that a developer did. So, okay. and it's even, it's just in a Not lot of ways, it's just, no, no. they're um, So even on a maintenance project, a developer will be, updating with new features or fixing bugs and then the qa person will test to make sure that bug got fixed or that the new feature they added is working okay so it's there's still there's still definitely different roles even in a maintenance application
0: and then you get into the whole white box black box (laughs) do you know the differences between those
1: uh i mean i'm not much of a qa person so i don't I don't really know what they mean by when they're talking about white box testing or black box texting
0: okay so since we've come to a point where you don't know <laughs> the differences like ones like blind versus like you knowing or not knowing right however as a recruiter you switch positions so often in an environment and oftentimes if you're an agency you get these positions where it's just like these, they call them purple squirrels or unicorns. Like, what is that? You know, because they can't find the person. So they yeah. need help in finding that person. And oftentimes you're not focused solely on Java developers, Java developers, unless you're specialized. You're often switching between software engineering, infrastructure, and then you're like, okay, what mobile? And it's like, what is that? And you have to relearn so often. Yeah. And, and so, so that can be the challenge in recruitment. Whereas I feel like, I mean, like when you're a professional, when you're a software engineer, you are in your zone. You're like, you know, you know, everything. You're like, how come recruiters don't know about everything about this position? Well, it's because we switch so often. And of course, the other thing is, you know, um, that there are very, there are very green recruiters who are just starting out. Right, Aaron? You probably like met some of these and and they don't know anything but then there's very experienced recruiters you know who who've like been doing it for a long time okay i think that's just an important element to know that we switch so often between like having to understand something that there often comes that time where you have to ask the right questions and but having a general overview is imperative and then go down from there Hey, listeners, I really appreciate you tuning in to my podcast. Please remember, if you're listening on iTunes, to give us a good five-star rating. And if you're listening in on other platforms, throw in some great comments below. We really appreciate all the support. Now on to the podcast.
1: Yeah, that's what I think. I mean, yeah, it's. I definitely understand that if you're a recruiter, you're hiring for all kinds of different roles. I think that the best you can do is just try to understand a lot about the general process of software development. And you know what is front end versus back end? Like, how does that fundamentally break down? Or like, what is really like the life cycle of developing software? If you can get that, I think it's easy to pick up the other stuff from there. But if you don't have that whole picture view, because what recruiters have told me, especially um, recruiters that I've talked to about this course, they've said, this is a good idea because it took me so long to get up to speed on understanding the whole picture. And like, if you just give somebody the whole picture from the beginning, I think it's a lot easier <laughs> from there.
0: I I I I can see that, yeah. Versus like having it little pieces here, or little pieces yeah. there, and, um, and then having to, you know, I I coming from a a data background, I felt like that was my forte, and I could really dive into web application development because it, you know, that's that's what you're doing a lot in the data side. Um, and also in, in, in data development. But, um, then once I got over the infrastructure side, I was like, oh, oh, learning curve. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. How to learn all new stuff. Um, you know, and it's oddly funny that I hadn't taken on other than like helped us, not that that's infrastructure really, it's more support, but, um, I hadn't taken on any of those roles till a few years into recruitment, I was getting so much of the software development roles, maybe because there's more of those, I, I don't know.
1: There's, well, if you think about the makeup of a team, the largest part of the team is the developers. Yeah. So,
0: sure.
1: And the, the turnover is kind of high with developers a lot of times, just because, and I think there's a lot of reasons for this, but um, I mean, a lot of software projects are kind of mismanaged. So it just makes sense that there's a lot of turnover.
0: As in the person leading the development wasn't giving them the right direction or?
1: Yeah, it's, it, well, it's just, I think I was reading some stats on this and it's like something like 50% of software projects fail. Hmm. And that's because they they went over budget, they took too long, something like that. But it's just because it's so hard to communicate like what somebody actually wants when they want software. There's so, and there's so many famous examples of this. like. You probably remember when the, um, the healthcare exchange came out a couple years ago, like yeah. Obamacare. Oh, yeah. And that like mm-hmm. famously, the software was just broken because too many people wanted too many different things and the development team didn't really know what to do like, at the end of the day because you've got 10 different groups asking you for 10 different things. and I mean, it's just, it's just really hard to build software.
0: It's interesting because it's like, this is the plight of the software engineer. And in um, recruitment, there's all these recruitment blogs and recruitment Facebook pages and groups. And as I have been getting to know a lot of these people in these groups, there's a lot of like snarky sort of comments and rants and what have you about being a recruiter and having to deal with candidates and what have you and hiring managers not giving you the right specifications and like yeah you know this job description what this is not even what the person is going to be doing what is this you know and hiring managers not even knowing how to interview so there's all these and um you know previous to doing a conference the tech recruit conference for recruitment I was doing, I, I do CTO which are five CTO VPs of technology talking about how amazing they are. And it's like 200 software engineers in the room, right? You know, who want to meet them and learn from them and what have you. And I feel like I never came across the snarky sort of, um, you know, complaining that I did within recruitment. But but maybe I just wasn't on the blogs and in the um, the Facebook pages. Do you think there's a lot of that too, like just in in development that people are like? Oh yeah. Oh, that. Yes, you do. Yeah. What are some of the complaints? I'm just curious. If you don't mind me asking.
1: Complaints like, like complaints about um, re- recruiting or complaints about no, development about in general. But
0: I already know what software engineers say about recruiters. <laughs> what do developers? complain about in their own like coding world
1: yeah so a lot of times and i think this is becoming less true but you might have an engineering manager and they kind of know what they're doing and you might even have a manager above that that kind of knows what they're doing but then like all of the layers of management above that they might have never written software before like have no idea how to build software and like the the um the direction you're getting from the top is just so out of touch with reality like they want like all these features and all of this stuff and it needs to be done yesterday and it needs to be done so cheaply and like it's just not going to happen like that's not like some of the stuff that um executives ask for the numbers they're trying to hit are just insane a lot of times so the it's just like the thing that recruiters i think have to understand when they're talking to hiring managers is that like maybe half the projects that they're working on of these hiring managers are behind schedule and over budget like they're just the direction they've been given and impossible to work with and um they're struggling to keep up with it so you see people complaining all the time like there's a there's a good subreddit called cs career questions and people go on there and have i mean a lot of it's junior developers so but there are definitely like more experienced developers on there too, complaining about stuff. And you'll see people talking about like what happens when a project goes off the rails and everybody's working overtime and like there's no way it's gonna get done and they're just waiting for everybody to start getting laid off. Like that just, it just happens all the time in the industry. So developers are, they can be pretty hesitant to join certain companies or like the reputation actually really matters.
0: I think that's such... An interesting, that's such an interesting point, Erin, because I mean we deal with the hiring manager, right? Like who's probably at the top and like you said, isn't really touching the code. And how is he explaining this? He's like, oh, I just need this filled, and he's already behind budget and behind schedule, right? So there's always by the time a recruiter comes into especially if it's an agency, there's they're very, um, time sensitive and they don't want to ask a lot of questions or, or, or they might already have this, I don't know, what's the, what's the word this, um, impatience to to the conversation already. And they don't want to explain or dive into it. And, and so you're quick to kind of get off the call because you can sense that impatience, you know, but there are imperative questions that need to be asked to make sure they find the right person
1: yeah and, the, and it just depends on the organization too especially talking to startups like newer startups sometimes the people founding a company are not technical at all and they don't even know how to build software or they don't know how to manage a software team like it is very yeah, or, or build hard a team. <laughs> yeah right H- how to build a team it is very hard to build software effectively and if you've got people that just decided to slap CTO on their title, but they have no background doing that. And they're trying to start a startup, like they've got money and they want to hire people, but they don't really know what they're doing. I mean, that, I feel like I see that all the time too.
0: Yeah, yeah. We definitely that's a
1: terrible that environment to work in if you're an engineer. <laughs> like those are, those are the kind of environments where it always ends up becoming like a 60 or 70 hour a week thing and a death march.
0: Yeah. And in recruitment, that's a great conversation to have too. And the best part of it is it's a startup and we're not gonna pay you make yeah. really it, but there's equity if but they there's make equity. it.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I mean, um it's you have to really make a decision if you think a startup is going to if you're an engineer, I think they a lot of times they end up hiring a lot of junior engineers because they don't yeah. understand that the likelihood of that equity being worth anything is very low. So
0: you know, Aaron, I feel like recruiters and software engineers have so much in common that we need each other, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with yeah. our plight with hiring managers and their high expectations, we should just come together.
1: For sure. I think I, I, that's why I think like all of these tools like Vettery and Hired, like it's great that they're trying to automate part of the process, but at the end of the day, like I think it's... I mean, you can, you need recruiters, you need people in the picture because the, the issue is if you go like as a developer and you try to apply for job postings, you don't even know how many of those job postings are real. It's much easier to work with a recruiter who can be a buffer and know that like, oh, this is actually like a warm lead on a job. Like, <laughs> otherwise you're just wasting your time applying to jobs because the likelihood that the job is real or that you get through their ATS system or any of that is it's it seems a lot lower than if you're actually working with somebody who's like hey I've got this job do you want to send me your resume and apply to it right now
0: It's funny that you know there's so many fake jobs out there cuz I feel as recruiters like we we see that so often um and fake resumes too fake yeah. resumes that people put on those job boards and as a recruiter I'm like what is this Google executive doing on monster.com? Right. <laughs> and I'm like no. calling them up and, and sending them an email. And lo and behold, I'm getting spammed from this company in India's hot list of candidates that are available. I'm like, ah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's such a, it's a, it comes like both ways. So, all right. So the, the site, um, I teach Your overall mission is what?
1: I want to help new tech recruiters get up to speed faster. I want to help them learn that domain knowledge that they need to learn to be really effective in tech recruiting. I want them to take away from me is like I can help you get that faster.
0: Would you ever do recruiting yourself?
1: I've thought about it, but I think that I like programming too much. I'd probably just still be a programmer
0: you, I'm like, you make so much money. Um, depending on if you do it right. And maybe you own your own agency. Huh? Um, <laughs> uh, that's, I feel like also people who have a background in engineering or software because they can speak the language, make amazing recruiters and are yeah. more successful. Cause I thought about going back into being a, I think I told you earlier in the show, um, uh, an engi- or a, a data engineer, (laughs) like squirrel, I have this squirrel that's always trying to steal our ornaments in the backyard. Um, and I don't think I'd make as much money if I went back into doing data development or, um, really analysis. Not that I'm making now. No. What do you think? What do you feel are some of the bigger, um, misconceptions in software engineer that really, in, in, in software engineering or development that is confusing for recruiters? Like you mentioned Kafka and yeah, I think are the bigger ones you need to explain?
1: I actually think the biggest one, which is the fundamental breakdown of how applications are built is front end versus back end. I mean, I know that a lot of recruiters are pretty new to the industry. I, I can just see that just going on LinkedIn and trying to search out for recruiters a lot of recruiters haven't been doing it very long. And I know the washout rate is pretty high, but I think a lot of it is because there's like these very fundamental things that are pretty basic and you can mistarget target people so easily. Like I get people contacting me about front end work all the time, but I wouldn't ever wanna be in a role that just says it's a front end developer because even though I have React on my resume, every other role I've done is either full stack or back-end. It's just, and i think making that really basic mistake you're mistargeting like 50% of your messages right so that front end versus back end thing is i think it's probably the most helpful thing that all recruiters all new recruiters should should get nailed down pretty quickly
0: for somebody who does both what do you think a better outreach would be you're saying don't say front end versus back end
1: well so like I do both, I'm a full stack developer, but it's pretty clear from my LinkedIn profile that I've done a lot more backend work. Yeah. Like normally there's, a, there's like a funny joke of a, it's like somebody has a crudely drawn, um, I think it's like a centaur where the front of it, it's like a, this hand drawn thing. And the other one, it's like this masterwork on the backend. So it's like, that's a full stack developer. They're really good at one thing and they're kind of okay at the other one that's how most full stack developers are they're either really good at front end and they're okay at back end or they're really good at back end and they're okay at front end
0: mm-hmm. like there
1: there isn't usually somebody who's good at everything and can do either one like interchangeably and it's it's easier just to try to target people based on exactly what you know they're doing whether what they're focused on than trying to send them random stuff like i i've had recruiters just send me a bunch of random um job descriptions like are you interested in any of these i was like (laughs) what
0: (laughs) there has i've done everything in my in my recruitment career of the last 10 plus years i think it's been 12 now i started in 2007 um during the financial crisis of 2005 anyway um I graduated in 05 and then I think three years later I was like a financial analyst at Mellon Capital and then suddenly they went under and I was like, ah oh. um but you know I, I landed in recruitment. Um so I forgot what my train of thought was. <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> what were you talking about?
1: <laughs> Front versus back end.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Um you you were saying bad things that recruit- <laughs> Sorry, bad things that recruiters do. And I certainly, and being a green recruiter, it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall, especially if you're working at an agency because all these other recruiters who've been there for 10 years and you are just like this shiny, bright-eyed, like, I've been here one day. And yeah. you're all excited and you're like, they're like, quote, quote quota, quota, smile and dial, smile and dial, smile and dial. And you're like, ah! You know, and you're, you're looking behind you to make sure that you're not gonna get fired. And so you're just trying anything and everything I don't think it's till you're like a few years in that you realize yeah. all that stuff is gonna ruin your reputation.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's what people have told me when I started to work on this. They're like, well, if all these recruiters are spamming out random stuff and it seems to work for them, like, why do you want to make this course? Like, obviously, it works to just spam out random job descriptions. Like, I was yeah. like, I don't really think it does. <laughs> I don't it think that's it a doesn't
0: good work, and you get a backlash. I've have, I have been on Twitter before, and I looked for all these people who were talking about I forget what skill set uh, skill set it was, maybe Python or something. I found all these people who were talking about it, and then I put the job description and I tagged them all in it, and they were like, "Is this what Twitter has come to?" And I was like, "Oh
1: no, oh man."
0: Yeah. One person was like, this is a great company. I'll look at it, you know? Yeah. But, um, you know, there's trial and error. But then, you know, as you cultivate, just like coding, I think. Probably when you first started coding, you probably made a lot of mistakes. And then you're really good at it now. Um,
1: I, I mean, if, yeah, it, when you're a programmer, if you can look back at your code from a year ago and think it's yeah. good, that means you're not improving enough.
0: <laughs> I'm going to use that. All right. With that, thank you so much for being a guest on the Tech Recruit podcast. Aaron, if anybody would like to reach out to you, how can they reach you? How can they find you?
1: They can go to my website, com, or they could find me on LinkedIn. Uh, or they could email me. It's aaron at ard.ninja.
0: I think these would be amazing courses for any company that Had recruiters who they wanted to train, they can bring you in. Do you do that? Do you travel? Do you do in house, or is it like web um, webinars that you do, or can you train over? How do you generally deploy these?
1: So, so far, it's just a video series that I've got. It's just like a one time purchase. You just get the video series for how many ever seats you need. But I will do a little bit of, I mean, I'm starting to think about doing a little bit of consulting.
0: Mm, Yes, I mean. We can talk. We can talk a little bit more about um, some things that we could do there. But it was wonderful having you. You have yourself a good day.
1: Bye.